Hello and welcome to episode four of Movies in a Podshell podcast. The podcast which takes one great film and couples it with a classic movie from another era. This week's pick, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Jamie and as usual I'm joined by Mr. Worldwide, but you can call him Johnny. I love that intro. Roger Deakins to Mr. Worldwide in the space of a week. I think that's pretty impressive. Listen, I couldn't let the pit bull... I couldn't let it go, and I, I was—I <laughs> can't—I actually can't even distinguish the difference between Pitbull and Flowrider. Their music, I can—I reckon I can sing loads of different Flowrider songs, but I don't think I've ever heard a Pitbull song. I feel like I need to shave my head now and go the full, full Pitbull. You actually look like you've had a haircut. I have ha- you? <laughs> I've had a lockdown haircut. Harry got the uh, the razor out. Yep, she's done a fantastic job, like, looking absolutely <laughs> slick. Like, I obviously always have a haircut, so um, I don't have to worry about that. I can't tell if Jamie's been sarcastic about my hair or not, but hey, we'll find out. <laughs> no, no, it looks good. Like, I thought you knew of some secret barber that I was going to have to try and contact because I had to do my own beard. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what to say. It looks fantastic. I'm, I might have to have a socially distanced haircut from Harriet. No, that's in a, no. We can't do that because actually. Um, no, current current UK government guidelines would not allow that. So we will, we won't be doing that. We follow the rules all the time. Anyway, so we're going to start off the show like we normally do every single week. Yes, it seems to be weekly, and let's see how that goes. It seems to be working. I mean, we might be pulling a double shift today and tomorrow. Who knows? I don't know. Right. So we're starting off with what we've been watching. Johnny, what have you been watching? I have been watching so many films for the pod, I have not watched that many additional films uh, because we are double bulking at the moment. Um, however, I've been watching quite a bit of television that I've missed out on. So I've actually started watching WandaVision and I'm not going to give out any spoilers because I'm sure there's a lot of people who haven't watched it. Um, but I really enjoyed it so far. As I'm sure people have seen from the trailers that it's it's got a very different feel to anything I've seen from Marvel before and the fact it's kind of... Thank God. Looks like an old uh, sitcom from the 50s and then the next one's kind of in the 60s and they go through different eras. So it's just really nice seeing something really creative and different. And in a weird way, it's not the same, but it kind of links up to the film we are talking about today and the fact of it's a modern things, uh, a modern film's take on, a, on an older time period, which I always quite enjoy, to be honest, from production value and, and that kind of thing, really. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, from what I've uh, seen of WandaVision, which is pretty much zero... It's such a breath of fresh air um, because I am so sick and so tired of the Marvel. Like I'm, I'm I, that sounds a bit harsh. Do you know what? I I enjoy it. I'm just a little bit. Uh, it's it's tired. It's tired now. It's the it's a, it's a definitely a. Um, what would you call it? A, a formula. Form- yeah. It's very formulaic now, isn't it? The thing that was frustrating towards the end of the phases, and I won't go too into it, but was every time you went in and Doctor Strange was basically the same as Iron Man 1, it was just the twist was it was a different person. But they did perfect the formula. And I think that's what Marvel knew they were doing. They found their niche, they found their audience who'd like seeing that stuff, and they did it over and over again. What I really liked about stuff like my favourite of, of Marvel films was... Um, in uh, Infinity War because it was like Empire Strikes Back it's the ending you don't expect and everything goes wrong kind of that's that's the one that I enjoyed yeah. because it, it did something different and for me personally I enjoy that far more than I did for things like Ant-Man or, or other ones I still enjoy those films and I'm, I can't say that I've never enjoyed them I have it's just I found them all quite similar to a point and then it was really nice when we started doing these different ones. I quite enjoyed Winter Soldier for doing something different as well, to be honest. I think I think there are different ones in there, but 
there are a few too many that were getting a bit similar. So yeah, One Division has been great in the sense of something really different and quirky to be honest it yeah. might have been like x-files episodes back in the day like a one-off mm. random tangent for a day i just i just yeah, yeah. Well, well the style is actually based off of the uh like a particular graphic novel mm-hmm. um from the uh, called the vision i believe okay. I, i'm pretty uh, so that that actual graphic novel is it's almost like uh it's definitely inspired by that and um, which which is it's just much more interesting for me um but like you said yeah don't get me wrong I I think what Marvel have done in terms of the the journey they've taken everyone on, it's been absolutely phenomenal um, to keep up that like level. Um, however, I think I'm just a little bit jaded now. Like that's that's all. I'm I'm, I'm cool. Like I I could still I can still enjoy them just like you. But yeah, Endgame, like you said, like that the ending of Endgame is that's what we want. Like just something a bit a little bit different. And it was it was the the climax. I don't know if they're ever going to reach that again. They're never going to get to that peak again for me. I personally was Infinity War more than Endgame, you know. I, I loved the, the the ending of just... Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, yeah, yeah the, I, as meant, I, said, I meant Endgame. Uh, no, uh, I meant Infi- Infinity War. Sorry, I meant yeah. Infinity War. The I'm Empire so sorry. Strikes <laughs> Back ending, I just thought that was great. Just like it, it, other, other film series have done it too. I mean, the second Hunger Games has an ending similar to that as well. But I just, I have, I have a soft spot for the film that does the darker, the darker ending that you don't expect. I don't know. I just like them. And whenever they try and resolve those things or wrap them up I always find the resolutions never as satisfying as getting to the problem so I quite yeah, enjoy yeah, watching yeah. the downfall and not so much the, the how it resolves the redemption that's the word there you go 100% no I, I fully agree how about you what have you been watching so I we for, randomly watched American Psycho which bizarre actually like I would have ranted and raved about how amazing this film is it's still very 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 good but I would, I would, I would have previously held it up on a pedestal and put, like, been like, yeah, like I never give anything a ten out of ten. So I'd have been like, yeah, nine point five out of ten. I, I mean, now I feel like it's more of like an eight out of ten. I, mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just feel like it's a little bit, it's a little bit. It's just a bizarre film. Um, I, like great soundtrack, great performance, all round really. Just crazy film. I, I don't really, I don't need to go into it. Like we all, we all know it's been done to death by now. I guess. But yeah, American. I, I, I've got to say, my favorite is one of my favorite movie scenes of all time. Is the bit where he's, um, and I'm sure it's, everyone's going to know what scene I'm talking about. It's the part where he is looking at the business cards, yes. and he's like sweating, and he's like, "Oh my god, it's eggshell with raised lettering, right?" And it's just like so funny, like how how intense he gets just literally about a business card because that's that's their world. All they care about is business and like looking good and but yeah it's it's a it's a strange film i probably enjoyed it less this time than i have in the past so when i was an angsty teen or whatever i would have been absolutely buzzing off it um so yeah and then i watched for a little event on instagram i did i watched it was called a stone in your shoe event and it was done by uh, moving pictures and film forager who actually writes into the show quite a lot um, and I think we've got a question from her this week we missed her last week by pure accident um, but yeah we're going to answer a question this week uh, Chandra so uh, I watched The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward oh, yeah. Robert Ford now t- let me uh, let me tell you Johnny I know you haven't seen this but you, this is well up your street it is I would say one of the most beautiful films uh, that I've ever seen Roger Deakins I was waiting for the reference for Roger Deakins to be coming out because I knew I knew he was involved yeah, it, it's it's un, it's a it's a brilliant film. I, I wrote I did a review on it. Um, so uh, the first time round, 
So I was I was actually expecting it's a West, it's a western, right? It's a western following Jesse James like it's like a character study. Brad Pitt plays Jesse James. It's got uh, Casey Affleck in it, and it's it's the first time I watched it, I was expecting a western, colorful, vibrant, kind of like fast paced kind of thing. And then when I actually sat down to watch it the first time, I was like, oh my god, this is two hours and forty minutes, and it's really boring. And I didn't finish it. I was this. I just, I just was not expecting what I watched. So I was like, right, this has been doing my head in for ages. I'm going to watch it for this event. So the idea of the Stone in the Shoe event was essentially you watching a film that has been bugging you, and that had been bugging me for ages because I knew that people rate it so highly, and I just didn't get it. So this time I went in with fresh eyes, knowing that it was a slow burn, and I actually described it as like an anti-western. It's it's literally it is a western but it's got none of the western elements you'd ever expect it is a slow burn it's a full-on character study um and it's shot absolutely unbelievably roger deakins has he's done it again he's yeah. done it again that you can have the you, you could see it in a museum that's what i said so i said that you go on so i've watched a roger deakins documentary this week and it's not actually documentary it's a youtube uh, clip and it's basically taking all these different interviews that he's done from his early work to now and he was talking about the fact that he doesn't like when people single out a shot from a film or or say that they they really notice the cinematography because he feels you should experience a film as a whole and if he's kind of doing something that's too pretty or too distracting then it's taking away from everything Stop being so amazing then, Roger Deakins. Well, yeah. And also, I would say for films such as Blade Runner 2049, which is absolutely stunning, it's very hard to not get distracted by the cinematography because it is so incredible. But anyway. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so for Jesse James, basically Roger Deakins, he created his own lens called the Deaconizer. Um, Do you know about that, Johnny? No, no, I don't. No, so it's basically, it creates like a vignette um, effect. Um, so yeah, it creates like a blurry depth of field effect and he removes the front element of a vintage lens, but also using the lens from an old camera in front of an Arri macro lens to make the image look more vintage and it changed right. the color and the vignette and around the edges. Um, so actually invented his own lens. So the only, the only other times I've heard of that, and I'm sure it's happened loads over the years is, um, Stanley Kubrick did yes. it for Barry Lyndon. So he created like a lens to capture stuff really, really far away. Yeah, I think does that sound right? Or that sounds about right. But also on the Shining, they had a—I'm sure they had a special lens for the corridors because it had to be a certain certain wide angle to do the tracking shots. Right now, I've said that I'm going to have to back it up on the pod in the next in a future episode. So when we eventually do the Shining, I will fully do my research because I don't like being a part time Charlie on here. So Uh, part time Charlie, (laughs) part time Johnny, and that's going to be your name when I introduce you next week. Anyway, so yeah, so it's the film's essentially like it's 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 beautiful. It's a character study it's morose it's sad um and it's exactly nothing i expected so actually this time around i was ready for that and i really really enjoyed it so yeah and and that's that's pretty much all i've been watching you what were you you were going to say something i was about to say i've actually watched another film which i completely forgot to mention i watched gone girl of course the david finch film because why would i start the podcast without saying i'd watched another david finch film i mean come on i feel like this is going to be a running a running thing now on every single episode where you mentioned David Fincher and I mentioned Dirty Dancing somehow. Oh, just did it again. Well, yeah, so Harriet said, let's watch Gonga. And I said, yeah, great. So we watched Gonga and it's really, really good. Um, it's a shame that some, I know it's one of those films that some people have seen 
bits of spoilers from the internet, so I'm not going to talk about the plot, but it is just a great domestic noir, is how I'd describe it. And even if you, you have seen spoilers for the ending, the way it pans out is not the way you expect. I've also read the book, and I would say it's one of the most faithful screen adaptations, which I always enjoy. We've talked a lot about that before with the Bond books and that kind of thing. So yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah. I've actually heard that um, Gone Girl... I've not read the book, but I've heard that actual for once, which barely ever happens, the film is better than the book. Oh, I really want to go into it, but it's really hard without doing spoilers, so I'll wait till... The, Look, we're not going to do spoilers, now. Let's yeah. not do that. I'll um, wait till the, a, a, a day we go into it, because I'm sure at some point... I know we've just done Finch, so it'll be a while away, but I'm sure we'll eventually talk about it. But the thing that I find really difficult to, to compare between the film and the book is in the book, um, it utilises diary entries at points... And it's really good for getting into the mindset of what the character's thinking. And then in the film, it's not always used. There are, there are voiceovers, but it's not always used at the times I would want it to be from the book. So without yeah. giving spoilers away, sometimes when someone does an action, people go, why? Why have they done that? And again, in, in literary form, it's a lot easier to get across why, because yeah. it's their thoughts pouring out. Whilst in a film, it's kind of leaving it more to interpretation. And I think that's just a difference between the mediums, but it's just something I... Yeah, that's my one thing about Gone Girl because I really enjoy both, but I just yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty much what we've watched this week, which isn't much. Um, but do you know what? We've got a lot to talk about because the next film, another one of my favourites, one of my favourite directors. We know we know I can't choose between him and Scorsese. It's Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Quarantino at this moment in time. Right, we're we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from 2019. It's official, old buddy. Has been. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. Hey, you're Rick Dalton. Don't you forget it. So, I mean, I'm, I usually talk about the plot. There really, really isn't much of a plot, but it's. Uh, we know it's Tarantino's love letter to L.A., Hollywood. So, basically, if I was to be... If someone twisted my arm behind my back what I would tell and they were said tell me the plot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I would say something like this so essentially it follows a an aging western star who is sort of like trying to come to terms with the fact that he's no longer the hot kid around town hot kid around town hot property I don't know whatever you'd call him he's no longer he's, he's not that popular anymore and he's, he's on he's definitely on that downward trajectory now it follows uh rick dalton so that's who that's that's the person i'm talking about played by leonardo dicaprio and his so is his right hand man cliff booth played by brad pitt is his stuntman and so it essentially follows that really like in uh, set in 1969 and so these stories all there's there's several threads to the film so it follows rick dalton cliff booth separately and then sharon tate which is the third sort of thread will follow and that's essentially it. Like, so I guess let's get into it. Like, what mm-hmm. what do we say? It's a really, as we said, it's a really difficult film to do. So I know we normally like to do a play by play, but it's going to be quite difficult with this, with the uh, intertwining and uh, intertwining narrative. Sorry, to get all that together. So we'll probably go through through characters because that's probably easiest. But just to say, 
I think it's probably interesting to talk about how the film starts because that's like a good setup for the way we go. So you, it starts with the old Columbia logo, which instantly I love because it just yes, gets you in this. the mood. And it's love just like, this. okay, cool. Uh, and it starts with a black and white TV trailer of Bounty Law, which is the um, fake TV series that um, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, character Rick Dalton stars in. So for a bit of history for people who don't know, because I didn't really know before going into this and researching, in the 50s, Westerns were really big, but it was kind of, you are in that era between 50s and 60s, you were in a TV show and then you would try and break into Hollywood. And if you didn't get, if you didn't break into it, that was kind of it. And in the film, Rick Dalton's character, he's had the successful TV show and it's based off Steve McQueen in real life had a Western show in that era. And, you know, they always, in the film, they discuss how they say to his character, did you, uh, Rick Dalton, did you not get um, asked to do the great escape and he said no i was never interviewed for it and then you see cutaways of um him digitally inserted into a scene for the great escape and it's yeah. it's very meta because steve mcqueen was on a, a cowboy tv show he got his big break and he went and that was his big film and then off he went so in the first scene sorry we, we see this trailer and then we see him having an interview with someone back in the 50s don't we and it's in black and white and the journalist is kind of asking about his relationship with his stuntman now, apparently Tarantino picked the relationship between an actor and a stuntman because when they were doing Death Proof, Kurt Russell's like really close with his stuntman. So he thought yeah. this would make a great idea for a film, which is so Tarantino to just go, yeah, why not? Uh, so this was the context. But uh, this interview really sets up the relationship between Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's character Cliff because they're just joking and not taking it seriously. Um, and he's just so reliant on Cliff, isn't he? Oh god, yeah. Like, I mean, I must, I must begin with saying, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, is probably he could be my favourite Tarantino character ever. The way Brad Pitt plays him, and I'll, I'll go into a little bit about that later. Um, so yeah, as Johnny said, yeah, Bounty Law is like um, it was. It, I think it was so it was based off an actual TV show called Correct. Wanted Dead or Alive, I believe. Yeah. So yeah, their relationship is amazing. The relationship actually they they made in real life as well so then okay. them two actually really get on in real life now because of this because of this and it, it kind of shows pretty much at this stage tarantino can approach anyone he wants and they will say yes to being in his film apparently normally dicaprio takes something around 20 million and he takes a pay cut to do the tarantino films because you can't afford to have brad yeah, pitt so he, and leonardo yes. dicaprio so he took <laughs> he took a 25 percent pay cut there you go it was a 25 percent pay cut to be in this film um because he, he he just wanted to he wanted to work with Tarantino again, and you can kind of see it like the the amount of cameos um, we see mm. in this, and I'm going to go into that later. Like someone's wrote in about about the cameos, and um, but we'll answer that in a wee bit. So yeah, I guess it starts. It kind of starts off with them two, like Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton, going into this bar and they meet Al Pacino. But as they do, so we were talking about the intertwining narrative. The going to the bar is kind of signalling it's the end of Rick Dalton's shining star. The fact he's got to meet this film producer who's going to offer him this opportunity he doesn't really want to take, but it's intercut with Sharon Tate arriving in LA. She's Perfect. just moving into the, the big house. because so The whole film is about old Hollywood and new Hollywood. Rick Dalton's a guy from the 50s and 60s who was chiselled and the archetypal hero of that age and it very you know military haircut and that's what they look like and they're, they're a man's man then suddenly in the 60s they were having these lover not fighter kind of types who 
who had you know longer hair and it's kind of the fashion changed and what people wanted changed and the film is kind of showing that he does not know how to be that person as the, as the film goes on he learns how to be while Sharon Tate was representative of the new age because at the time she was living with Roman Polanski who at the time was a hot and upcoming director and their neighbours in the film and basically what it's showing is their worlds although they're in the same location are so far apart because one is completely on the rise and as you said the other one is very much on the fall down the pecking order exactly and so he so yeah we see we see uh, Rick Dalton walk into this bar and he, he sits down with Al Pacino Quentin Tarantino actually wrote the part for Al Pacino knowing it would be Al Pacino so he wrote that part specifically for him and I said we don't see much of him but it's it's just lovely to see Al Pacino in anything to be honest and essentially Al Pacino just tells him how it is you are a little bit washed up you're like you what you need to do now so around this time there was loads of um sort of late in the late 60s there was loads of like uh, Sergio Corbucci who actually gets mentioned a lot in the film they were starting to come out of a lot of Italian westerns so I think you had stuff like Django coming out as well which which was Italian um films like that um and you had that coming out and then and then Rick Dalton kind of he's he's told that basically you're not the you're not the new kid on the block anymore you are you need to be you need to go somewhere else like there's it's this is not for you and so he's pretty he's like pretty devastated and he's walks out and sort of cliff booth's like oh what's wrong he's like i gotta star in italian movies that's (laughs) what i gotta star in italian movies like and he's he's going crazy isn't he they're talking about um listening to leo and and um uh, Quentin talking about the character they they play with the idea of him being bipolar as well as an alcoholic because in the film he's just drinking a lot throughout the shoots and through through um through his day in general so Cliff's his driver because he's lost his driving license due to a car incident drink driving offense um but what's really great is Cliff and uh, Rick are so different but they're worlds apart and we literally see that because Cliff goes home with Rick and they watch the TV to see his latest episode of what program, of what TV show he's on. Yeah. And then after that, you see Cliff go home and he lives in a trailer park way outside of Hollywood. He has to commute in every day. But I'm jumping ahead a bit there because I should say one of my favourite things about this film, because Tarantino loves his detail, is the fact that he's put Leo in all these different TV shows from the era and it's so enjoyable to watch them film in the style of that era and replace Leonardo DiCaprio into those scenes. You know, I love talking about different techniques and cinematography, and I love the fact they had different film stocks for what they were doing. So they shot all the old TV footage in 16mm because that's what it was shot on back in the day. The whole film yeah. itself is shot on 35, but they also used Super 8, uh, Super 8 to film some of the behind-the-scenes at Sharon Tate's house and that kind of thing. So again, just so much detail. The facts. Tarantino does this and it's just it's exhausting yeah. how much detail has gone into this film really yeah and and, and, it, and it's almost like I think it's criminal to think that people could watch this film and just watch it it's a two, two hour 40 minute film watch it kind of enjoy it it's a little bit of a slow burn for a lot of people That that's the feedback I've got from my friends when I sort of recommend it to them the fact that they can this is, this could be a throwaway film to some people and and me knowing and you knowing and soon everyone's going to know the amount of like stuff that's gone into the into the back end of this the production design the the work that's gone into it is probably it's definitely Tarantino's most detailed piece of work it's been today. described as his his magnum opus as you know his his big most personal projects and very much 
as people used to describe Zodiac for David Fincher. And I do think it is because both of them, Fincher was obsessed with the idea of Zodiac because he remembered it growing up as a child. And Tarantino said, I remember this as a child. One of the things we see a lot in the film is um, people said it was excessive because you'd see cars driving and you're basically in the, in the POV of being in the passenger side looking at the person who's driving. And Tarantino said that's because when I was a kid and my stepdad drove me around Los Angeles, that was the view I saw. And also yeah. it's showing off as well, to be completely honest, that they've blocked off miles of road and they've got all the old cars in from the 60s and they are showing it in a continuous shot to make the point of, we've not digitally removed things here. Here are all these cars from the era out and the amount of production value and design to that is absolutely staggering, really. Yeah, 100%. And the the fact that he's actually like redressed pretty much every single storefront, which... Um, <laughs> like all the storefronts and to the point of where the detail he's gone to of making sure that the cinemas they pass on the day that that was shot so say it was based on tuesday the 8th 1969 the films that are displayed on those cinemas are the actual films films. that were displayed on the cinemas back then and that stuff like that was mind-boggling apparently he did also if there was a shop with flyers in he'd also have flyers that were like time period correct the pamphlets it's just next level terms of production design and someone raised a really valid point which was the costume designer for this film she had to make the period costumes for the people appearing so Sharon Tate um, played by Margot Robbie Rick Dalton the actor at home but then she had to make the wardrobe for Rick Dalton when he's at work and it's all these cowboy outfits you know it's so she's basically made three films worth of costumes you know for for one film I just thought that was amazing yeah. really it's, it is incredible and we I must like just literally Barbara Ling is the production designer for this film and I just we just she needs someone needs to uh, we always talk about the director we always talk about the actors Barbara Ling production design yeah unbelievable and what also, a legend also to be fair we we also speak up a lot on cinematographers and the production design is such an integral part of that because they're capturing the production design you know so it's just exactly. as important yeah yeah exactly um so so yeah and and then so after after this horrible meeting um they they sort of get in the car and they're driving along and this is when we we first kind of see these 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 hippies i guess um that's what we describe them i don't want to spoil who they are just yet um but yeah so so this for me massively i i'm almost certain this is um so one of uh, tarantino's favorite films is a film called switchblade sisters mm-hmm. and so that is, is and it's i would have definitely used that as a pairing like i would have begged us to use that for a pairing but it is simply unavailable to us um and so it's basically about these uh like this gang of girls uh, that go around sort of like killing mugging that kind mm-hmm. of thing and the the these these characters these these girls that are like these hippies that are walking around they're exactly based off them i'm i'm almost okay. certain um so then they walk across the front of cliff booth's car and how many times have we seen that in a tarantino film mm-hmm. the the thing that come to mind straight away was uh, marcellus wallace walking across the front of Bruce Willis's car yes. and he looks into Bruce Willis's eyes and then it causes all the carnage in Pulp Fiction so that like, reminds me of Psycho you, if, if you watched Psycho yet yeah I've seen Psycho yeah so she's driving away with the car and the money and, and she pulls up at the traffic lights doesn't she and, yeah, she and does, there's yeah, that split moment where yep. it, there's like the uh, character takes a second glance at her 
and then it's ah panic she gets pure paranoia yeah yeah yeah. so exactly maybe it's a reference to that because we all know he's a big you know devout follower of cinema in in all good yeah and he he loves he he does love hitchcock as well Mm. like if you look at his favorite films there's many many a hitchcock film in there torn curtain included by the way wow yeah yeah he likes he likes a bit of torn curtain okay so basically that that's that's the 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 set setup of the beginning of the film and then we kind of see it, it cuts to I guess Margot Robbie. She's she's like sort of walking around, really jovial, always smiling, really lighthearted, and she's portrayed in an almost like angelic way. I think like he's obviously really he's been. I think he's been very careful in the way he's portrayed her, and he obviously cares about it a lot. She won. Margot Robbie described it as wanting to. She believed that Sharon Tate had all the the best parts of the 60s so free love and you know she gives someone um a ride early on in the film doesn't she and she yeah, just seems to be yeah. a really caring individual and really she pure get, yeah and she just gets that across i mean the fashion and you know we've just talked about the production design and costume design she looks the spitting image of her as much as you physically can without being the oh same she does she look yeah she does she because we've she really looks amazing we've not talked about what we pair it with but it is a sharon tate film because we wanted to know how close it actually was and it was yeah. quite weird watching them back to back and seeing how close it was in terms of the spirit because i know her sister had a lot of involvement um deborah in, i deborah, think it was deborah yeah, yeah um with allowing them to 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 portray her sister, I suppose, and and do it in a in an appropriate way, and yeah, it's great. And they even let the sorry, they even let Sharon Tate wear, and sorry, they even let Margot Robbie wear Sharon Tate's jewelry. Yeah, yeah, for the yeah. film. And what I what I love about the Sharon Tate scenes is it's showing her enjoy Hollywood. So she's optimistic and she sees it all in all its glory. So we see it through her because Rick Dalton, we see it as we see it through him and Cliff and Cliff lives miles away and it's not going well and he struggles to get jobs at the moment because there's rumours which we'll talk about shortly oh god yeah um, but on the flip side of that you've got Mar- uh, um, Margot Robbie's character Sharon Tate who's you know she's just moved up to the top of Hollywood Hollywood Hills or, or whatever you call it Los Angeles and she's on the up and she's in um, her fourth the fourth picture of a spy franchise which she usually does well so she is 100% on the up at this point yeah, absolutely, and the, yeah. So it, it's it's completely it's, it's it's polarizing the way the way Sharon Tate's portrayed compared to the way Rick, Rick Dalton's portrayed. They are literally opposites. Um, one is so lighthearted, the other one is jaded, and it's almost. I, I guess he's he's kind of he's had enough, hasn't he? A little I, bit. You feel sorry for him because he was basically told all his career that you have to be this guy you have to be the cowboy you portray this way the hero wins at the end of every week etc etc and then you'll get your break and what's happened to him is he didn't get the break he got so close to the audition for the feature film but it's never happened and they make it clear that he did do feature films but all the films he did were either b-movies or didn't do well which is why he's left with the only option of doing these italian films so he goes home that evening with rick and they watch his tv appearance i can't remember what the first tv show is it's not fbi is it the first, there's, there's three different shows. No, it's does. not. No, I, I, can't, I can't remember. There's, how, it's, it's a, there's how, so much detail. Yes, but however, they enjoy his TV appearance, and it's just great just watching Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio hang out in a house having a beer and having a smoke watching these TV shows. To be honest, it's just really entertaining. Uh, yeah, and exactly. you know, Tarantino loves indulging in really what could be quite mundane things, really, and it's quite you know. And it's really enjoyable. But what my favourite scene is actually after this. Cliff goes home and he's got a dog 
and he's just making dinner <laughs> yeah, yeah. for his dog and it's just there is no point to the scene i must say i love it but there is no point to the scene it's just let's show a life in the day of cliff so cliff comes home from work he, so he drives rick around in his great car and then he gets into his not so great two-seater knackered old car drives home so we see la and it looks beautiful as we've already talked about he gets back and he lives in a trailer he gets in his trailer and his dog's waiting and his dog eats dinner at the same time as him but it's the most best trained dog i've ever seen in my life it's so obedient and it's one of my favorite scenes i just think it's brilliant yeah no it's, it's, it's really it. really funny yeah it's really funny the way the the way the food is obviously it looks disgusting and it <laughs> And he drops it from like head high into the boat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like the filthiest dog food um, I've ever seen. And yeah, it's, it's, it's they're just they're obviously best friends. And they t- he he talks to his dog like, oh yeah, don't you bark at me like you know all this like <laughs> if you he, bark you don't get to eat you know all that, that yeah stuff. that's it yeah and yeah he's just like Cliff Booth like Brad Pitt has done an, a staggering job at Cliff Booth and I don't know how he's done it but like almost everything he says is hilarious the tone in which he says it's hilarious and the character in general he's, he's just one of the funniest he doesn't care about anything like no consequence to anything he does like he, he's not bothered is he so we know that he was a korean in the korean war and we know that he obviously he's the stunt double for rick dalton we know that much but we find out through family guy-esque cutaway gags about it fills in the blanks so we find out that people are afraid of him because there's a rumor that he killed his wife now we don't actually know if he killed his wife we see a cutaway and it's his wife basically having a go at him on this boat berating him saying they told me not to marry you they told me you were a waste of space they told me and then he's got a harpoon gun and he's just holding yeah. it. And before you think anything's going to happen, it just cuts away. So we never actually know yeah. what happened with his you, wife. You, you or if she actually, died by accident. Or... Exactly. <laughs> he doesn't actually ever lose his temper. Like, no. it's, it's really bizarre. Like, he does the, the weird things he does, like, which we're going to talk about. Like, and the, the things that would be, like, quite outlandish for a normal person. He never seems to appear to be losing his temper. He's always quite calm and that's why i think that's why his character is so funny because yeah. he's just a bit of an oddball uh, so i guess after this um Le- like leo arrives he's on the set he arrives on the set of this is it a tv show johnny yeah uh yeah i believe it's a new pilot and what he's frustrated that's by is it. he meets the new lead who's the new him it's the new guy yeah. coming through and it's he's funny it's timothy place. oliphant so it's timothy oliphant who's actually in justified which is like a tv a western tv show that ran for years so yeah he's like basically the he's the washed up guy that's arriving on set that's gonna get beaten up he he becomes the chuck norris of the set do you know what i mean like yeah. so when when chuck norris obviously we portray chuck norris as this like hard man but it's all a bit of a joke and th- and that is what rick dalton is so he's um he's in makeup so he arrives in makeup and the the director of the show is talking about like oh yeah we're gonna get you in like with long hair and just a really big beard and he's like what no one no no one's gonna know who i am he's like yeah yeah it doesn't matter though that's the point like and and he's like choking and coughing (laughs) he can't believe what he's hearing because he knows he's losing his identity at this point but what's interesting is actually this director really believes in him and he's trying to say to him to flourish in new hollywood yeah you actually need to accept that you can't just be Rick Dalton all the time. You've got to show you can act and be different people and not just be your face. So actually, it's the starting to reinvent Rick Dalton. The film shows us this this slow 
um, slow progression to becoming a new Rick Dalton. And it comes to the front really because there's a scene shortly after this where it's a very indulgent Tarantino scene. We basically see a whole take from something from a Western and it's intercut into the film as if it's not being shot as, you know, you, you don't see the behind the scenes of the film. And the whole scene is probably three minutes long and then Leo's character messes up his take and the whole thing is to show that he's on a film set and he's kind of uh, sorry on a television show set yeah. and he's losing it because he can't even get, remember his lines anymore because he's drinking too much at home and he yeah. can't get on top of it and then there's a scene which is apparently Tarantino doesn't like doing lots of improvisation but with these guys he let them loose and they they left the camera rolling in the trailer so you basically yes. see Leo have an absolute breakdown in this trailer because he can't remember the lines and he's taking the mick out of himself we'll have to put an audio clip in of that because it's yeah so oh god it's incredible and, <laughs> and embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people I hope you enjoyed that um, we basically he is like yeah he, he just loses his mind and that is it's, it's incredible isn't it like that so good apparently so I heard like Leonardo DiCaprio struggled playing Rick Dalton because he had to act a little bit badly and stuff and he's not used to it that kind of thing like so I heard it was quite challenging for him but yeah that that bit where he's like he's met he's messed up his lines he was drinking loads the night before he's an alcoholic and he's like really giving himself grief like as you've just heard then the next day he comes in he, he promises himself he's like you're gonna be better you're gonna be better like all this so he uh, promises himself he won't drink anymore and then immediately takes a swing of his drink <laughs> yeah, then realises he's taking a drink and then has to throw it out the door which yeah, I just so that's funny. just such a good detail it's just so good it's, yeah it's incredible um, so then he comes in the next day ready for business um, oh sorry but before that he, he actually he actually bumps into this little girl on set who is it's really interesting back and forth between this girl who's uh, eight years old and she is like really embodies acting. It's it's her it's her life. Like she's she, brilliant, by the way. The actress who actually she? plays the part, the actress who plays the part of the actress. She's she says the what is it? The idea of the actor is to achieve the best. She says he says why aren't you going for lunch? And she says I have a scene after lunch. And he said so. And she says if I if I eat it makes me sluggish and it takes away from my performance. And it's getting to Leo that getting to Rick we should say getting him to think more about maybe you need to take acting more seriously he doesn't believe in the idea of achieving the perfect scene he just thinks you turn up you say lines they film you and off you go and she's the opposite saying she treats it almost like a theatre performance and she's got to be all encompassing you know and absolutely it, so like she's, she kind of yeah she coaches him in, in, in a sense and yeah. he feels vastly inferior and it's, it appears that he is inferior in general like yeah so he, then he obviously that day he they're reading this book and so she is reading a book and he's asking her what he, he sits next to her and he's making loads of noise like like he's a bit of an old man like and he's making loads of noise and quite interrupting her and she's reading this book and he's like oh yeah what are you reading and uh she she tells him it's some something really sophisticated i can't remember what it is and then he says she says to him what are you reading he's like well it's just this western <laughs> and the but the western he describes is essentially his, his life, life isn't it yeah isn't it yeah so <laughs> yeah. it's really really interesting and the scene the scene's a good five minutes long but it's a, a classic example of a tarantino monologue um which is which is so in for me so interesting and actually do you know what someone writes in johnny yeah and they say and they, they've asked what is your favorite tarantino monologue so why don't we answer that right now I'm going to be an absolute cop and actually say that one. I was really struggling. I had a top three 
And it oh was my between God. You're going to say that one? I was going to say this. There was the Christopher Walken in uh, Pulp Fiction, which is about the watch, how the watch has come to pass. Right, okay. Uh, and my third one... Oh, what did I pick for my third one at the end? I was going to say Michael Madsen in Reservoir Dogs. Right, after okay. The, I suppose that is a monologue after the chair, when he's got him tied up to the chair, he's going at it. Yep, yeah, we'll, we'll allow it. We'll, it's our, it's yeah. our podcast, Sorry. so yeah. we're having yeah, it, so... Not? Um, I'm actually staggered that you didn't mention the big obvious one, um, which I'm not going to choose, but Ezekiel. So um, that's the point. I know yeah. we're, we're always difficult in this podcast. Let's be honest with our film selections. Anyway, we're not going to pick that one. We want to surprise you. We want to surprise <laughs> you. That, that's that's it. Like we're not going to sit here and be like Ezekiel because it's so obvious. But what I love about this, the my number one, the reason I picked it is the fact it's coming from an eight year old girl. I just find it really funny. It's just you know between. I just yep. think that's what's to me so brilliant about it because it's just so well acted. Yeah, I I say all the time, and I say I say I say all the time. It's the fourth episode, but I have said many times already in our three episodes that I can listen to a Tarantino script all day, like two people talking for ages. I was thinking about it quite a lot. Um, it's probably the I know this again. This might be a cop out to some people. It's actually the first. So the first monologue I ever heard was from the first film that he did. And that's Reservoir Dogs okay. when they talk about um, not tipping. Yes. So in at the start of Reservoir Dogs, they're they're all in a, all the, they're all in a diner. Mister Pink, Mister Brown, Mister White, the whole lot of them. And um, yeah, so he Mister Pink, I believe, doesn't tip. State played by Steve Buscemi, and he said he doesn't believe in it. And he's like, and so they have this like really a good long again long four minutes of really engaging, really funny dialogue about why he doesn't tip. And it's it's just hilarious. So that's that's probably my favourite. Um, and yeah, we we all know Ezekiel is probably the best. I've got a question so. though. I was trying to remember what was the monologue in Kill Bill. I was trying really hard to remember. It was it the monologue from Bill. So ah. the monologue from Bill. Um, when the you're opening actually narration is it? Or the what? Is it the narration? Or no, no, no. It's it's a monologue of of from from Bill. So Bill himself, who I don't, uh, you might not see till the second film. I can't. I think remember it's the off second the top film you see him in my head. You don't see yeah. him on the first one. I can't. I, yeah, I'm I'm gonna say I'm not. I can't remember off the top of my head. So okay. um, viewers, please correct our absolute amateur Tarantino knowledge. Oh, they're gonna say, oh, J- oh, God, I can't believe it's Jamie's favorite director, and you can't tell me every single Quentin Quarantino monologue. Because John would know not. about Alien 3. That's the difference, mate. I John would know. know about Alien 3, and it only <laughs> took us about 40 minutes into the episode for him to mention it. Fantastic stuff. How far are we in, John? Around that, yeah. Well, Bad. perfect. There we go, then. Yeah, you've, you've done good. You've done you've done a very good service to our listeners. I must say, um, there is actually a link between the two films, as we're on the, on the idea of David Fincher and Alien 3. The guy who did the special effects for this film was John Dykstra, and John Dykstra did the effects for Alien 3 as well. <laughs> you've actually done it. You've actually <laughs> so, somehow got a link. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, I think the only... I, I, I don't know what digital work was done in this film. The most obvious one is obviously Leonardo DiCaprio being placed into the old film footage from um, The Great Escape, which John Dykstra would have supervised. However... They don't make it very clear in the behind the scenes if they do any more digital work on the shots on the streets. I feel I feel they must have done some. I don't know. There must have been some manipulation. I cannot believe that, but um, I cannot believe you've just done that. Do you know, I was so, so happy when the credits came on and it said John Dykstra. I thought, brilliant. There's, there's my excuse. <laughs> do you know what? That's, uh, yeah, that's that's fantastic work. Next level. So well done. Well done again. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Where where were we? So where were we? So actually, do you know what we've we've spoke about? We've just spoke about Reservoir Dogs. We've just spoke a little bit about Pulp Fiction. So this might be a really good time for me to actually mention um, the Tarantino connected universe. So you all know what the MCU is. Um, we don't talk about that because it's been done to death. But do you know what the TCU is? Tarantino connected universe. So in actual fact, like I know Johnny knows a bit about it as well. With Tarantino films, what he does is actually he's got a realer than real universe and then he's got movies within a movie universe mm -hmm. so for example i'm going to give you like a few examples of that so what my absolute favorite example which i think is incredible is for any of you that's seen pulp fiction which i absolutely know you almost all have as being film fans listening to us ramble on so when uh uma thurman she sits and speaks to john travolta i believe it's in the diner and she's she's talking about Oh yeah, oh yeah. So I was once, um, I was once in this show called this pilot for a show called Fox Force Five. So yeah. this show, Fox Force Five, she describes as um, these assassins, um, and she describes all the characters. And actually, the plot she is describing is the plot of Kill Bill, which I love. That's the first. That was the first really obvious one I got. I think that's the first one people get, isn't it? But I, I really enjoyed that. Especially because, I'll be honest, when I went back to watch Pulp Fiction, I'd forgotten the reference. So when I went back to it, it was really nice to actually hear it back. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's that that kind of detail um, was incredible. I, I couldn't I, I couldn't believe it, but it's actually the tip of the iceberg. So there's so many more things. Um, for example, you've got John Travolta. I believe it's Vincent Vega plays, and then and then actually Michael Madsen that that plays Mr. Brown, I believe, in Reservoir Dogs. They're brothers. Yes. So they're they're actually brothers in 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 that world. The briefcase that is stolen in Reservoir Dogs is the briefcase that is presented to Mark Marcellus um, Wallace in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. All of these things are all linked. Hey, so it's there's actually a, an actual chronological order you can watch them in. I believe it's Django first, then Hateful Eight. Running through all these are just little themes like the, the obviously the red apple cigarettes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's 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 definitely there's stuff to explore there. All the a lot of the characters are related to each other. It's incredible. There's some about Hateful Eight as well. Some of the characters from Hateful Eight being linked to the characters in Glorious Bastards, maybe. But there's a really good video about this on Screen Rants, and I would recommend genuinely if you are interested in Tarantino, and you didn't know about the shared universe. If you go on Screen Rant and search the uh, the TCU or Tarantino universe, it's a really good explanation of how they all link up. Because it's not just the films that Tarantino's directed and written. Uh, there's there's films that he's just written or. Um, people have asked to be part of the the red yeah. apple cigarettes. And yeah, get so like na natural so. born killers, yes. uh, true romance, dust from dust till dawn. That's the one I was trying to remember. Dust till Which dawn. Which one? Dust, dust till dawn. dawn. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he's it, it, he's uh, he's really really thought about this um, way way before. So yeah, long before um, the MCU. And this is the thing. Genuinely, jokes aside, the fact is he was setting up this idea in around 1992 was the first time he started doing it and I find that really cool that he did it that early on but I suppose it's it's similar to something like the Universal films back in the day or the monster films all linked up so I suppose, yeah, yeah, I suppose you exactly. know it has been done before but just to have the confidence to kind of go I'm going to put in a fun reference here and then another fun reference before he knows yeah. it if you do five or six of them you have literally made your own universe so yeah it's, it's, it, yeah. It, when I first heard about that it absolutely blew my mind and I was so hyped when I seen it and I was like, this is incredible. 
But what we've spoken about is the tip of the iceberg. So please do your own research mm-hmm. and go and enjoy that. There's there's an actual chronological order to watch all the films in. You'll see all these little different references and you'll notice that these some of these characters are all related. So so there we go. So next, I guess we've, we've digressed loads. Um, here we are. This we, we spoke about the, the the little the Rick Dalton sorts himself out. He yes. well he sorts himself out over the a period of a night. So he's he, he doesn't drink that night, I guess. But then he comes in the next day, and it shows him walking in from his feet. Obviously, it's a Tarantino film. <laughs> he walks in, and but then it, so then he does he does his scene. So you've just witnessed the scene that he completely screws up because he keeps he keeps asking for lines. The next scene. Johnny, nails do you want to take this one? Just absolutely nails it. And he does a brilliant performance. Uh, and he's got the little girls with him in the scene. And after the scene's finished, he's absolutely made up because she whispers to him, that's the best acting I've ever seen. And he realises that all the hard work of not drinking, learning the lines properly, being at one minute, not having lunch before he turns up to the scene, it's all made a difference. And it's, it's good character development because it shows that Rick's understanding the situation he's in and the initial offer of the Italian movies, as he calls them, is probably seeming not <laughs> yeah. such a bad idea at this point because he's realising, I need to make my own way at this point and have my second wind. And this is the start yeah. of that. It's the start of his resurgence, I'd say. If, if yeah, on. absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, th- this th- this this piece of acting, I've I seen it and I was like, it's, it's got to be some of the best acting I've seen as well. The The tears in his eyes the emotion in his his face it's obviously he's acting within a film so he's acting within acting it's yeah. almost inception yeah which he starred in anyway uh <laughs> so he's 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 acting um within a film and it, it is it is incredible it's an incredible piece of acting and i i mean i think leo is probably i always name him or jake gyllenhaal as my favorite actors yeah i think they're both they're both absolutely incredible so meanwhile while this is all going on Cliff Booth is actually just driving around. He goes, he goes and fixes Leonardo DiCaprio's. Sorry, Rick Dalton's aerial that's on his yep. roof. Got his shirt off, looking pure buff at about fifty. Shredded, isn't Absolutely he? Shredded. Isn't he? Yeah. Like yep. oh. so. Uh, yeah. So then he's driving around, and again he sees he sees this girl again. This girl that he's seen that walked across his car in the fir- like towards the beginning of the film, and actually she's comes up to his window while he stopped at the traffic lights and she's like, oh, will you give me a ride? Blah, blah, blah. And then he says, yeah, oh, yeah, fine, no worries. He obviously, he's a bit intrigued, isn't he? Mm, he he finds out that she he wants to know where they live and where she's staying. She talks about Spawn Ranch. Now he yes. says, great, Spawn Ranch, I used to work there because he was a, um, Spawn Ranch is a real location. They didn't film yeah. at the real Spawn Ranch, but they, they built a set themselves for the actual film. But Spawn Ranch housed a group of hippies who were part of the Charles Manson family. Oh, you're just you're just gonna drop it down, drop it like it's yeah. hot. Okay, um, there they are so, then. So Jamie, do you want to give a little background on, on the Manson family for because I would say actually for context, if you don't know anything about the Charles Manson family, a lot of this will be lost on you because the first time I saw it at the cinema, I had a general knowledge, but um some of the people I went to cinema with didn't know anything about it and the last third of the film was completely lost on them. So I would say well, it's a bit late now because people have listened to all the spoilers, but it, it was definitely worth knowing about the Manson, the Manson family before going into the film because a lot's lost without that context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so for me, actually, this this had a massive effect on me because when I watched it in the cinema, 
I didn't know. So I, I like to. I actually am one of those people that don't watch trailers because I feel like it spoils the film nowadays. So I, I wanted to, and because it was a Tarantino film, it's a big event for me. Um, I wanted to go in as blind as possible. So I did. I went in as blind as possible. I didn't really know much about Sharon Tate. Actually, the thing that made me realize this was the Manson family was actually towards the end when there's a girl that's mentioned her name's Sadie. Yes. Which is, um, the, and the only reason I knew that was because there was an Alkaline Trio song called Sadie from back in the day when I used to listen to Alkaline Trio and I knew it was about the Manson. So I was like, mm. oh my God, yeah. this is about the Manson. Yeah. So everything I put like two and two together got five. And so it all started piecing together. So obviously for those who don't know about the Mansons, um, actually we, we you obviously know about Charles Manson. He he actually didn't commit any murders. No. He didn't do any murders. He was just a, a massive influencer, evil um cult leader from a cult yeah, yeah. It, it was a cult leader yeah he so he was a, actually a, an extremely talented musician and he was wanting to make it big he thought that was his destiny and so then the murders that followed were kind of like an attack on the music industry people say so he this was revenge this was revenge on the people that didn't didn't think Did he was good enough yeah. yeah, exactly. Because in in the film early on, we haven't talked about this. There's a scene where we see Charles Manson. We only see him once in the film, and he drives up and he says, "Is is this character here?" And where Sharon Tate now lives is the home of one of the former music agents, and that's why he actually chose to attack the home. The fact Sharon yeah. Tate's in it was an afterthought later and later on because he realised that they moved out. Uh, so yeah, we'll touch on the rest of that later in the film. But basically, the point we're at now is going to spawn ranch to see where these guys are housed and yeah tarantino describes this sequence on the ranch so it's all in daylight but it's really unsettling straight away you just know something's not right it's very eerie without the atmosphere eerie. Isn't everyone's it? being really friendly as well they're being welcomed and it's it's just something's not quite right and he described it as his texas chainsaw massacre moment and he talked about the idea between scares and tension and he's saying the whole time you can hear the dogs so wherever the camera cuts to to make you feel kind of enclosed in the into the environment you always hear oh, where okay. the dogs are on the ranch because the dogs are against the outsiders does that oh, make sense I, I didn't know that that's, yeah, that's interesting it was, it was again this was another interview we did around the time of release it was really interesting hearing how he kind of built the tension in that scene but Cliff basically says I know the guy who owns the ranch I want to go in and speak to him so he goes to speak to him and the guy unfortunately is now blind he doesn't remember who Cliff is anyway and the guy sorry played by Bruce Dern who's yes. incredible yes uh, and he he says to him do you know you've got these guys staying here and he said oh I know I don't care they take care of me and we're trying to gauge is he being taken care of is he being silenced or not uh, it's yeah. quite unclear it, yeah it's, it's almost like they've brainwashed him mm-hmm. just like charles has brainwashed them yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. it's like yeah and and it, it, this this is probably like my maybe second favorite part of the film like because it just follow we've got such a long time of cliff i'd, I'd kill for a just a um a side a side film just with Cliff Booth because his character is like I've mentioned it a few times already like so funny so yeah we, we spend this time with Cliff yeah and, and then then it all goes pear-shaped like we've got a a pretty good uh, like an awesome performance by Dakota Fanning who I yes. hadn't seen in a while she is essentially 
Bruce Dern's, she like looks after him and the, all the rest of it, like, and does lots of other stuff with him that I won't go into. So yeah, Cliff walks out and it's almost like a standoff between him and this girl that, uh, her name is, uh, what is her name? Pussycat? I think I'm it's sure Pussycat. Pussycat. I can't remember. Yeah, so, yeah. And um, so it's like, almost like a standoff with her and then they- They're he annoyed just, he, that he didn't believe them about yeah. being on the, th- and, and they see him as an outsider and they start calling him a pig. And, yeah, he's, and, he's had enough you know, at this point. So he he's like, nah, I, I'm off ski. So he's just like <laughs> making his way out. But as and he then, gets to get in the car, he sees oh. there's, a, there's a knife in the tyre. And it's not his car. And it's not even his car, it's, it's Rick Dalton's car. So he's annoyed about it and he sees the guy who did it. And the guy owns up to it. It's this guy with really long shaggy hair. He said, do you do that? And he's, he's laughing. He goes, yeah. And he said, okay, he went, go and fix it. And he says, <laughs> yeah. no. So Rick Dalton just goes and caves this guy's face in until he says he'll do the wheels but let's uh, go yeah. and put, put the tire back on sorry but as he does this they say go and call Tex and we've briefly been introduced to Tex and Tex is kind of the man about town and he's on horseback so we we see the sequence of him running on the horseback and we're worried that he's going to get to Cliff before Cliff escapes that's kind of the yeah. tension builder yeah um, so yeah it's a really really good scene because again I, Tarantino said the reason he felt there was really good tension is because Cliff wasn't a real person and he was a fictional character he could have died at any point in that sequence the audience the first time you watch it you don't know what's going to happen to him and he felt the tension was there for that reason he said if it would have been an actual historical figure because it was based on someone who was a stuntman who did go to Small Ranch but he he changed it enough to make it so he could play with the details let's say yeah absolutely and and I think this this scene really shows how Cliff Booth he embodies he almost embodies he's a stuntman and in in the fact that he's a stuntman he's actually a reckless person and a law unto himself as a person as well so he 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 is a stuntman but he's also like he he is reckless I must say that's what it comes across as we haven't actually mentioned a very key scene which establishes this in his character yeah I know I was thinking of it he asks Rick when he joins the TV pilot we've discussed where he sorts himself out he says can I come and work on this gig and he says oh no it's the guy the the stunt director is the guy from Green Hornet he's still annoyed at you about last time so we don't see anything of it for a while then then it suddenly does a cutaway gag we see Cliff ask Rick on the first day of this new pilot if he can get involved and be a stuntman for it. And Rick says, oh, no, you can't get involved because it's the same uh, same stunt coordinator as on the last gig I did. And he's still not is, happy with you. Who is played by? Kurt, Kurt Russell. Russell. Yep. Which, so love that. And we find out that the production manager as well is Kurt Russell's wife in the film. Okay. Yep. And, who, and do you know who she is? No, go on. So Kurt Russell, so that that woman is actually Uma Thurman's stunt double. Oh yes, I did so, hear this. So she's see she's Uma Thurman's stunt double. Um, she also she then she then become, started acting in um, Death Proof. Yes, and now and now like Tarantino uses her an actor and and she's yeah. fantastic. She's hilarious. She's really good. So we yeah. we see the reckless character of Cliff come through because Bruce Lee starts talking about how he could take on Muhammad Ali in a fight and and knock him down. And Cliff completely disagrees with him. So Bruce Lee says, prove it. So the first time Bruce Lee absolutely annihilates, um, they say that who can take each other down best of three or something. Yeah. And the first time Cliff gets taken down almost instantly by Bruce Lee. It's really funny. Then the second time he he says, oh, it won't happen (laughs) twice. I'm ready for you. I know what you're going to do. 
So he, <laughs> he, he says, okay, bring it. And as he does, he gets he gets Bruce Lee and just body slams him into a car. And we find out it's the production manager, the wife's car. So Kurt <laughs> yeah. Russell's absolutely furious because yeah. he's left him alone for two minutes. And in that time, his wife's car's just completely smashed up by the stuff yeah. who he didn't even want to be there, who's forced no, his way on he already set. He already warned. He already warned. Don't piss off Cliff, the wife. Like, yeah, stay away from my wife like, because she, she doesn't like <laughs> she her. She thinks you're a wife killer. Again, yeah. And within literally like within two minutes, he's thrown Bruce Lee into a car. And Love like that. then obviously it's, it's been mentioned quite a lot of times now. Like, people weren't happy. Like Shannon Lee, um, Bruce Lee's daughter, they were really unhappy with the way Bruce Lee was portrayed in this. Um, really upset because he comes across as arrogant. I mean, I, I've heard that Bruce Lee was quite like that. I don't, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I've heard he was quite arrogant and he was, the way he speaks and stuff, yeah, it was. Just, they were just really unhappy with the way Tarantino did that. I, I'll be completely honest. I don't know enough about Bruce Lee to comment, but what I would say is, because the film's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it does take liberties with a lot of things anyway. So yeah. I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. It's, it's in the context of this film. Yeah, it's it's just sets up who Cliff is. But I don't. It, I don't yeah, think exactly. it's it's a it's not a documentary on. No, it's, it's you know. Once Upon a Time. Hence, it's a fairy tale. Yeah, hundred percent. It's a fairy tale. Like. That's it's it's a reimagining of this time with fictional characters and some real characters and and that's all it is. Don't think too much into it. So I think we're naturally getting to the next part of the film which is when there's a big time jump of 6 months. I mean, do we want to speak about when Sharon Tate actually what goes to watch her own film? Is that Sorry, that's quite yeah, important? That's that's very important before that. One of my favorite sequences and I've forgotten about it. Again, just it's so nice because Tarantino talked about when I th- I can't remember what it was one of the films he wrote early on was it might have been True Romance he wanted to try and get into the cinema for free because he'd written the film so the sequence right. is a play on what happened so, oh, Sha- right, okay. yeah, so Sharon Tate goes in and she says I'm in the movie and she's going to the theatre to watch herself in the performance and she wants to see how the audience reacts to see if they like her or not and um, she eventually gets into the film and she has a pose next to the poster and she's so excited because she's going to see herself on the big screen. I yeah. think she had done a few films before this, but this is she at has. this point the biggest film to date in her career. And uh, she plays the klutz in the film, so she's always getting in the way of the of the spy and falling and all this thing. So she goes to watch the scene. So very Tarantino, of course, she puts her feet up in the cinema and the feet take up a vast majority of the frame. Well, with no shoes on. With no shoes on and apparently... No shoes on and no, and no socks on. And apparently this is because Sharon Tate did not like to walk around in shoes at any point, which is why the feet are shown to be dirty. That's a random bit of IMDb right. trivia for you. Know, I, I was going to say, it, it did make me bulk a little bit. Like yeah. I was, I felt a little bit sick, even if they were Margot Robbie's feet. <laughs> yeah. However, <laughs> just the scene's great because it just shows her reaction to the audience because the audience are laughing at her in the scenes. In the, in the right way, she is. She is the com- com- the comedic relief, the comedy relief of the film. Um, in the film she's seen at the cinema, I should say. So it's really nice and it's really heartwarming to just see how happy she is that they're they're really enjoying it and she's part of it that, that's yeah. it really it's just a she's, really sweet yeah. scene really she's sweet. yeah and yeah she's so like lovely and sweet and pure and that that is what the way she's been portrayed mm-hmm. um and i think yeah tarantino look, took a lot of care with that um so yeah i mean next next part we, we kind of we've gone back a little bit but so after all this stuff happens with rick i mean rick dalton at this point this, all this stuff's happened it skips ahead six months 
Rick Dalton's gone to Italy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm lo- starring those Italian movies. But it, it's great because it's the character development of he knew that the whole scene with that nine-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old has taught him he needs to take it more seriously. And she said, your life, she basically says to him, your life could be a lot worse. You've got opportunities. So he actually goes, yeah, I have. So he goes and does, how many films does he do? He shoots loads of action films and westerns. Yeah, I think he does like four films or something. So it good. sets him up a little bit. He, I think I think it's it's almost his like it's acceptance, isn't it? Yeah, and he he um, he loves the, being in Italy apparently because the paparazzi follow him around all the time, so he thinks it's brilliant. That's like the big draw. And then he's he marries an Italian model, and we get the impression he's not that bothered about her. It's just kind of the fact that because she drew the paparazzi, he was so obsessed with the idea that he marries her. It's kind of implied that's that's part of it, part of the fame uh, game. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And it, it does mention that he goes to Italy to star in Sergio Corbucci films, which um, I spoke about earlier. Who was who was a big Italian Western real real director at the time. Um, so, and we know that Tarantino was a massive fan of Sergio Corbucci films. Um, so yeah, so he, he basically goes away with with Rick, comes back, and uh, Rick's sitting there like sipping his. Uh, he, he loves a Bloody Mary. No, no, sorry, not Rick. Cliff sits Cliff, there. He's sipping yeah. his Bloody Mary. He's in coach. And uh, Rick's in first class, and um, yeah, then we, then we get to the a scene, and it starts getting towards the end of the film now. A scene where sort of Rick sits down with Cliff and says, "Like, I'm really sorry, um, but I can't afford you anymore." So, so when when yeah. that happens, it's interesting because the film just it becomes really different because they establish what we're going to do. We're going to have one last night together and get absolutely smashed. That's what we're going to do. It. Yeah, and after that. Kurt Russell starts narrating as if we're watching a crime drama of yeah. a recreation evening. So it says at nine nine such and such PM, Rick and Cliff went to the such and such Mexican restaurant. Across the street, we saw Sharon Tate and so and so. And it starts making you feel a bit unnerved at this point because you've seen all this really nice stuff happen. You feel like you're shifting into this territory of you know in the events of that evening, we know the date they have said is the night that Sharon Tate in real life was murdered brutally by the Manson yeah. family and what Tarantino does is uses your expe- expectation of what you know has happened and turns it on its head that's where the tension comes from because the whole time you're worrying it's going to get to that point yeah and I remember knowing uh, when I was in the cinema that it's about Sharon Tate's murder mm-hmm. I didn't know at that point that it was by the Mansons so at that point I was like oh my god like but yeah this is this is going to be Dark. Um, rent yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really, really dark like I don't know what to expect um so yeah like so at this point um <laughs> so yeah at this point I'm, I'm laughing because I'm I'm thinking about a scene where Cliff Booth and Rick are sitting there basically getting hammered and Cliff's got this they gra- sorry they, they've gone out for a meal got smashed they grab a this taxi is, oh. they grab a taxi home and when yeah. they when they get home Again, they're watching FBI that's files. It, that's yeah, it. so they're watching Rick like in in this TV show, FBI Files or whatever it's called. Like Cliff decides that he's gonna like smoke this acid cigarette, and and that is when this is the penultimate moment in the film before all the bad things happen. So so at this point, I believe Rick is in the pool. Got his headphones, headphones on, with his, like with, his, yeah, with a with massive Moran's radio, which is so massive. Yeah, and, he's and loving life. He's <laughs> so funny. I don't know. Why. His yeah. wife's in bed asleep, and she's got noise cancelling. She's got like earmuffs on or something, hasn't she? She's yeah, she's all tucked yeah. away. And the, the yeah. dog's there. I love the dog. The dog's there. Ah, the dog's incredible. And, I love the dog. And then yeah, Cliff's obviously smoked this acid cigarette, and he's <laughs> so high. 
And then all of us... So then it cuts to, like, the Manson family in a car. Charles Manson's not there because, remember, he didn't actually kill anyone. He just manipulated everyone into killing. Um, it's, it's crazy. So Sadie, Tex, and this other girl, are, they're all in a car, and they're like, right, he said... Um, and and actually, what Manson said was... Um, in, in This is real life. He said, go in there and obliterate them as in like this this like absolutely brutally kill everyone like and that's that's basically what and these were like we're talking about 17 18 year olds here yeah this is a real thing and and that's when it's like panic stations and it's like like the, these these people aren't professional killers they're they're 17 18 year olds that have been yeah. told to go and kill someone so and they've been real, fl- and we know as well they were drugged up to their eyeballs weren't they he got them all addicted to yeah like all acid sorts. they were doing yeah, all sorts acid. of acid and stuff like yeah so that yeah. was the big thing back then and and that is like the so that's the reason why actually in real life like i don't really really want to talk about much what happened in real life or we shouldn't forget it but in real life these these murders were um pretty brutal because they were like they weren't it's not a hit it was just people trying to kill other people like and so yeah. it was just really like sloppy and nasty and so this at this point now, like they're talking about, right? We've got to go and we've got to go and finish these people. Blah blah blah. They're in the car, and then all of a sudden, Cliff's sitting there like high as hell, and the door bursts open, and they they run in like, and the 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 Tex has got a gun, Sadie's got a knife, and it's like, who else is in the house? And Cliff's just sitting there like laughing. He doesn't care. But when Cliff stands up to see the guy at the door with a knife. Uh, sorry, with a gun. He holds him at gunpoint, and and you know Tarantino loves a Mexican standoff. He does. So because does. because Cliff's so high, he just puts his finger gun up and just starts laughing. Yes. And Brad Pitt's got his Brad Pitt's got a famous laugh. If you search Brad Pitt laugh on YouTube, it's a great video. And he just starts losing his mind at this guy. It's just yeah. really funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So yeah, they're, they're literally pointing. Brad Pitt's pointing his fake finger gun, um, and Tex is pointing a real gun. And he's like, he doesn't really know what's happening. He's like, no. um, he says, like, "Are you the, real?" He says, "Are you real?" Yeah, and then yeah, like, exactly. and he says, "I'm as real as I'm here to do the devil's work," and yep. and which is a, a, a famous quote. And he says, "No, I remember your name. It's much dumber than that. It's Tex." <laughs> no, it's yeah. just... does he? No, he says, "Is it?" No, he doesn't call him Tex. He said, he he says, "Is it Rex?" That's it. Like yeah. he, he gets his name wrong, which is hilarious. And then like Sadie's looking around at. at like oh my god like how do you know him like yeah how do you know him and then all of a sudden like he goes and he like whistles his dog and his dog just starts absolutely mauling him actually at this point um cliff has got um what's dog, he got in his hand food. he's got the dog, he's food. Got a can of dog food in his hand which is an incredible sort of like three like sort of like all comes around in full circle this of this scene with him in the dog food throws a can a tin of dog food into this girl's face and that and it's it so heavy us. it literally smashes her up now what I want to say is I know I've talked before in this <laughs> Sorry, podcast laughing, is- about not la- liking extreme violence now Tarantino talks about movie violence and real violence and there's films which try and depict violence in a really realistic way and then there's films Fight which, Club. which go really over the top and this is very much the over the top spectrum but yeah. what I'd say is it's funny because we are okay with the violence that is taking place because we know what they did in real life. However, in the film yeah. at this point, they have technically done not much. They've, they've, not done, in, they've done nothing. We don't really know. Point, but because no. we know the historical context, much like in Inglorious Bastards, 
Are we allowed to do spoilers for other Tarantino films at this point? But uh, yeah, well, yeah, let's, let's yeah, talk it's about the idea. It's relevant. It's relevant. Revisionist sure history. Relevant. The whole point of these three films, Django, Inglorious Bastards, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's revisionist history. It's the idea of he takes a, a moment he likes, he builds it up and changes the outcome to something he wished would have happened, and that's the beauty of filmmaking. He can do that, and yeah. he does that here. And we get this weird cathartic experience by watching the Manson murderers get murdered themselves it's very strange thing to say out loud but that it's incredible is, that is it's tarantino is all about twisting the the audience's expectations of what you want to see and my god he does it he he makes you do that in this scene yeah and and i, and I think that the when i spoke about the brutality of what they did because they were inexperienced um people trying to kill other people actually what happened to them was uh, like the brutal like this this they are in the film he is sorry smash, in the film. Yeah, yeah yeah he is smashing her face off a I don't like that fireplace yeah about seven times and it's yeah. and it's just it's so over the top it doesn't even feel that like it's almost like cartoon violence isn't it at this point yeah they described it as cartoon violence but i'll be honest i still i still find it quite difficult but again as we said with the context of what we know it almost condones it it's a bit of a, a strange yeah, feeling yeah. but the other thing we haven't talked about here is and this is my fault when we see flashbacks to Rick Dalton's earlier films we see a film where he's in something similar to Inglourious Bastards and he's got a flamethrower and yes. he's shooting a flamethrower and it's it's talked about in the opening 10-15 minutes of the film within another if hour that, yeah. and what another hour and 50 along more yeah, than absolutely yeah and absolutely. then all of a sudden at the end so he's rick's taken out what two of them and then one of them ends up in in back out into the garden where the pool is so yeah. rick's got his earphones on he can't hear anything loving life and then all he sees is his window smash open and this girl comes into the pool and he's bricking it because she's she's already bleeding from the fight with rick and he doesn't know what to yeah. do Sorry, from the fight with Cliff. The fight with Cliff, Doesn't yeah. know what to do. So he runs into his garage, kind of disappears for a few minutes, and yeah. then he comes out with a flamethrower. Yeah. And he, he torches her. And again, it's so ludicrous and over the top. You just laugh because it's just crazy. And again, with the context of knowing what they did in real life, you're almost cheering for the fact he's torching Absolutely. this person. But again, yeah. it's, it's such a weird... Thing and you've yeah, done to the audience to manipulate us to feel that emotion. Of course, yeah, it. and and I think the the fact that we've you've watched you've already watched like literally two hours and thirty minutes of pretty much zero action. There's no action yeah. in that, in that film, and then it goes from zero to a million, and it's almost like it, it harkens back to harkens back to like films like Alien, where you get like that sort of there. It's sort of a one one hour forty minute. But that one hour, 20 minutes or one hour, 10 minutes is like, you don't see much, you see glimpses. Yeah. And so then it's so impactful when after two hours and 30 minutes, <laughs> you then see like... You're lulled in such a false sense of security once upon a time. Absolutely. The whole way through, you, you go leisurely pace, leisurely pace, leisurely pace. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of wham, bam, so quickly. Yeah. But, sorry, go on, you finish. Well, I was going to say, and, and, and to be honest, that, that, seg that segues me into a little question we had um, from Patch. And he says, does it bother you that semi-historical films using like poetic license to create an alternative outcome? So what I mean by that is, I think what he means is, does it bother you? And, and I couldn't think of any apart from Tarantino, really. That So does it bother you that um, we look at Inglorious Bastards and it's got a different ending than it should have had? And the, the same with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's got a different yeah. ending than the real ending. Does it bother you? 
I I suppose it depends how the film is pitched. If it's pitched as being this is a true to history as accurate as it gets and then it deviates lots, then I find it frustrating. But when a film's literally called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I kind of know it's not going to be 100% there. But let's say I'm quite like the Swords and Sandals films, right? Spartacus or Troy. Of course you do. But yeah, and those things are really hard to say how true they are to how much poetic license has been taken because the source material is so old, it's, it's difficult to... Clarify. So it it's a really good question though. I like it, but I would say for the yeah. context of the films we're talking about, for Inglorious Bastards, for Django, and for this, it doesn't bother me because, as I said, it's this idea of the revisionist history. Is it's it's the latest era of Tarantino. We know that's yeah. what he's doing, and if yeah. you know that from the outset, then you go in with it. But I would say when I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I didn't know that's what he was doing, and I was really worried what the hell he was going to do with the Sharon Tate stuff because I thought if I turn up and this is going to show me that I, I don't know, I, I I just had no expectation of how they deal with it. And I was worried, so I'm really glad they made the character of Rick Dalton and Cliff, who did this completely completely different ending to obviously what happened in real life, and yeah. No, and and I I must follow that up with saying, we so I know obviously we know what happened with Django, we know what happened um, in Inglorious Bastards in real life, and we know what happened in Once Time in Hollywood in real life. So I'll I'll say I love the fact that he created an alternative outcome. I absolutely love it because it's almost like justice has been served, and yeah. I, because like life is harsh, so the fact that he's decided to be like. Do you know what? This is what I would have liked to have happened. Yeah. And he delivers it in the most brutal way. And it's like, do you know what? This is what should have happened. If like this, this is, this is um, my vision and, and that I love it. So I can't yeah. say that, um, like you say, if it was, a, if it was presented as a truth to life, yeah, fine. Yeah. But it's not, it's not. And also we already know uh, Sharon Tate was murdered, which is horrendous. Yeah. So do I want to see her survive? And do I want to see what really happened? Yeah. yeah. Like I love that. And I must say, this is linked on a really nice link to the end of the film, which I must say is after Rick has killed the final perpetrator, they're taken away and an ambulance comes to collect them all. And Cliff's still really high as he's describing what went on. And they're not quite <laughs> yeah, sure yeah, what's so going funny, on. Yeah. But um, someone comes to the gate and it's someone who lives or someone who was staying with Sharon Tate and said, what what went on? And, and Rick thinks oh my god this is someone from Polanski's house I can finally yeah. speak and, and you know so he tells them what happened and then Sharon Tate's on the radio and she says oh thank you so much for that that's so scary are you okay and he says yes I'm fine thank you I'm fine so again she's new Hollywood he's old Hollywood and then she says why don't you come in here for a drink and come in and introduce yourself to us all and he finds out also in that scene I should say that she loves bounty law she loves Bounty yeah, Law and it's yeah. so heartwarming at that moment because he realises that people in the new Hollywood have been inspired by him and then she says why don't you come on up and the last shot of the film is the gates opening and to us it's a visual representation of saying literally his possibilities are opening right in front of him now because he's got a link into the new Hollywood so potentially well, I like in this that. world I like, I like that. he might go and meet that? you know this director Plansky who at the time was a new budding director and do an amazing film. I just love that optimistic ending. And Tarantino yeah. said the whole film is a love letter to the, the not the has-beens, but the people who didn't quite get their chance, who didn't make the next step. And these are all based on realish people or elements of different people. 
And I just love that reading of the film because although it's really sombre though, because we know that didn't happen, and that's yeah, so, it's, it's bitter, yeah. so bittersweet. It's really yeah, hard. Oh to man, do you know what you've uh, you've literally? It's almost like you've read my notes because I, I've I've put the same thing. I've literally written it's a bittersweet ending because you know you know that that's not the real ending. Yeah, but it's it's an ending that we're presented with that's really lovely and that I wish was the ending. So that's why it's it's so bittersweet, and yeah, it's oh, what can I say? It's 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 Tarantino for me. It's his masterpiece. Yeah, I, I know. I know that gets thrown around so no, no, much. I would say though, it's it's the most enjoyable one for me in terms of yes, it, it is indulgent. I, I messaged Jamie afterwards, and we, as we've talked about before on the pod, we do sometimes have a quick catch up to just get initial yeah, thoughts. And I do. said, I thought I thought the scene with Rick doing the acting and cocking up was a bit indulgent and then do you know what two days afterwards when I, I mulled on it I realised the character development that's going on in that scene I thought no it's not indulgent it's literally a master of his craft just putting it all on the screen and the fact yeah. he's, he, he's created all these different worlds literally well I say all these different worlds he's got he's making his western within a film about 1960s Hollywood it's just yeah. incredible and honestly just the TV bits are so much fun I, I, I are, yeah, I'll yeah, be honest yeah. as well I watched um, I'm quite into Star Trek I'm very much into Star Trek I used to watch all the original <laughs> series so I wondered how long that would take to no, come no. out as well so in terms of 60s TV I, I know that stuff like the back of my hand because that and the original Batman series I used to watch with my dad all the time so for me seeing those TV shows and yeah, watching yeah. it with Leonardo DiCaprio that he doesn't appear on Star Trek in it but it's just yeah. cool to see it in that style and the amount of effort they've gone to to shoot on 16 millimeter and make it look well, like well yeah and it's he, just you wouldn't expect just... anything less from him would you because no, just... he is he is a fan of film and you really feel that coming through and he he always said i didn't study film i went to films yeah. that's his quote like and i love that and that's what this film shows I also heard and I love this is that his mum said it was a lot cheap, cheaper to take him to the movies to see films he shouldn't see than it was to pay for a babysitter which is why they did it and I just thought that oh, was absolutely that's so brilliant cool, that, yeah. and it, do you know what right it's, it's funny that you actually now go into like 60s TV because we're about to talk about our pairing Wrecking Ball Crew so we decided to so actually we're arguing back and forth about what to pair this with because I was actually looking looking to pair it with a western yeah. Um, Johnny was desperately wanting to pair it with a Sharon Tate film and in the end I buckled because I was like do you know what he, he's right I let's, wanted to see what she was like because it's so hard watching Margot Robbie not knowing what Sharon Tate <laughs> is, was like is. to be honest and it was so nice watching we watched we both watched them back to back so it was great we to did. actually see yeah and it was a it was. celebration yeah I feel I, I felt like it was uh, we, do you know what we could have gone and watched a Polanski film but do you know what one he's a scumbag and two, why would we ever do that when we can actually watch uh, a proper Sharon Tate film and link it properly? Um, because he is, he, yeah, I don't even want to speak about him. I think anyway, we should talk about the fact as well that the film we have picked is a film that she actually go uh, Sharon Tate goes to see in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was yes. the link. So I, we did a film within a film, just like Tarantino Universe. Exactly, we went full Inception on it. So Wrecking Ball Crew. <laughs> I, I would describe No, 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 sorry. It's just called The Wrecking sorry, Crew. Sorry, why do I keep calling it Wrecking Ball Crew? Maybe that's a better title, but It's anyway. a better title. It's, mate. Wrecking anything Ball would Crew. Have been, anything would have been better than what we're about to speak about because <sighs> I'm going to tell you right now, you bullied me into this. I'm not having fun anymore. 
This is not fun anymore. You've, you've, you've. <laughs> this is not a parent I ever would have chosen. And I'm gonna tell. I've got a lot to say about it, but I'm gonna let you go first. Wrecking Crew, for those who don't know, is a spy series which was an American take on James Bond, essentially. And this is the fourth entry in the series, and it's not subtle about the fact it's. Jamie's giving me a look of sorry. Is it the fourth entry in a series? Apparently, not yeah. yeah, yeah. This is the fourth one, and then there was a fifth one which was going to happen, but it didn't happen because of Sharon Tate's death. The, the main right. lead was so well, upset he just refused to do it. But just to give the main con- lead, you mean Dean Martin? Dean Martin, sorry, yes. Right. So who? Oh yeah. To give, on. to give a bit of context, though, um, the film to me now is like watching Austin Powers four if it ever existed, because it's such a pastiche of what. F- spy films are and i know bond films haven't the older ones haven't all aged particularly well and they have outdated views but they had a lot more class and when you watch this film you'll learn why one thing i want to get out before i say anything further i love sharon tate in this film she was brilliant she was super the way she was portrayed as being so lovely and all those things she definitely came across she was stunning and the way she acted was it's wholesome I can't describe it as anything else it was just so wholesome and yeah yeah it, it was wholesome j- just like this podcast so yeah I mean this this was hard this I say this is hard for me like when you mention Austin Powers I know exactly what you mean now I don't want to offend any of our US listeners and I also don't I don't really know the um perception of James Bond in the US like yeah, I think true. I feel like a lot of um US people like see James Bond as like a little bit like throwaway like so, but for us in the UK James Bond is like a massive part of UK cinema UK culture British culture just in general yeah, I think absolutely yeah. absolutely and this film was obviously ripping off on that for me so I've written down this is a TV movie this is literally <laughs> a TV movie right it's as simple as that this is a Charlie's Angels slash Avengers. And when I say Avengers, I don't mean MCU. I mean the Avengers Patrick TV Manny show. with his top hat and his umbrella. Yeah, Love it's it. It's a pure ripoff. Like, take, it's taking inspiration from that. I think that Dean Martin in this, he should have stuck to singing for me. <laughs> He's clumsy, classless. And he, he, when Bond is... So Bond, we all know he always gets the girl. He's smooth. He is, he's a sophisticated guy, smart. I felt like Dean Dean Martin was um, almost sleazy. Yeah. Um, budget it, James Bond, budget the, James Bond. Do you know what's really interesting though? So this film was 1960, what? 1969. 1969. This, the same year that um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is based. It's based, but also the same year that On Secret Service came out. So to give a context yes. of what Bonds were like in in difference and comparison I think there's a good context for those of you who have watched Bond films how different they were because I think Bond is a hell of a lot classier for me the other thing I want to point out is the film for me is very similar in in some respects to You Only Live Twice which was one of the latter Connery Bonds before he came back to do Diamonds Are Forever but that had Little Nelly which was the yellow helicopter he he builds out of the suitcase and puts together and in this film they have a massive helicopter they build up and put together so yeah. th- this film basically uh, I'm not even really going to go into the plot of it and I'll be completely honest would I recommend it to lots of people to watch if you want a bit of fun and you want to see a film with Sharon Tate in it maybe go ahead but what I would say is it's it's cheap it's like it, it re- the production value of it is cheap but it, it as you said it's a TV movie and 
I actually had a really good time watching it. I think because I had no expectation. <laughs> I messaged Jamie yeah. and I just said, mm. it's one of those films where I don't think it's good, but I can't stop watching it. And what I loved as well is it has this theme tune, which is obviously its version of the Bond theme tune. And in the opening 20 minutes, it basically played non-stop on loop the entire time. Yeah, so I, I was that, whistling I it that. along the rest of the evening because I've been hammered with it that much. So all through the film, I thought, okay, it's done a good job of kind of saying to me, this is our hero. This is his main theme. Basically, you know, he kind of, I don't know, the, it's, it's a really hard film to describe. It's so 60s it hurts though. And this is yeah. why I wanted to see it as well, to see what the 60s culture was being portrayed like. Because we're seeing it through the eyes of Tarantino remembering it and I wanted to see it how they were presenting it at the time yeah yeah and it, and it, it was really like in the end although i give you a hard time about like forcing me to watch it it did make sense in the end it, it all made sense and i was like do you know what the, this isn't not just about um they put the podcast isn't just about me having fun every week like of, of course i do have fun and i love film like I'm, and i can be a bit selfish when i'm like oh but i, don't, I really don't want to watch it but so in the end i was just like right do you know what he's right i'm gonna watch it I I did watch it and I also I, I felt similarly to you it is um yeah it's it's low budget it's it's fun I reckon it'd be really fun getting a group of friends around getting smashed and just watching this because it's it's sort of like um it's a caper caper is like 100%. a really good way isn't and it? I think they were popular at the time. They made money. There's a reason they did them. You know, absolutely. They, they, you know, and and this is a thing we always talk about. And we're 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 actually falling victims to one of our own things. We always talk about contextualizing a film by how it was at the time. We're very much seeing it now yeah. because describing it as Austin Powers is describing it with a very tinted lens. Seeing it more as, as I say, comparing it to a Bond of the time, like on a Majesty's Service, or before that, You Only Live Twice for me, is a better grounding. And at that point, Bonds had gone wacky. Because after Goldfinger was the first kind of blockbuster Bond for me, and after that they kind of got more and more wacky. So you've got Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, You Only Live Twice having an, the end battle inside a volcano. Now this hasn't got the budget to do a volcano, so it's in a nice country house, which seems to get reused a lot throughout the film. Yes, but can you I know. can I just mention right? Um, there is a bit where he so he gets given these gadgets just like oh, in James Bond. It's, it's basically Q comes up to him and says, yeah, "Here's all yeah. your stuff." Yeah, yeah. It, you couldn't. It, sh- it should have been called uh, James Bond, like as in like Double O Five or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it could have been like yeah. a. It could have been like a side. A side thing of James Bond. Like, I mean, it um, could be the Felix Leiter movie because in in the books and in the films, like Felix Leiter always comes in and out of them, and he's the American CIA equivalent. And to be honest, they could have just said Felix Leiter's over here and here. Yeah, he why, is, why didn't they? Why didn't they? And so, yeah, the bit that Johnny's on about, like this this mansion, he uh, the main character. I can't even remember his name, but anyway, we're, we're going to call him Dean Martin. Who every time he enters a scene, Dean Martin singing like so it's their yes. Dean Martin songs which it, is so peculiar it's, it's like you know in Toy Story where it's um, you got a friend in me and it's basically he's always describing what's going on within the scene so people can contextualise yeah. it it's like <laughs> yeah, I'm Dean Martin and I've walked in a lady's hitting on me and it's great my life is so good and then that's it's literally much, what it's yeah, exactly. like and he's, he's always wearing this cheap white suit <laughs> Um, so, but this is, there is a, this bits like where like he throws these grenades and they whistle like. Uh, I, why do they whistle? I did. I could I not know, get it make because sense. it makes the noise. So sorry, when he gets given the gadgets, they say here's this bomb and it's basically grenade, but it's like in a black sock. <laughs> I can't describe it any other way, and it makes a noise long before it explodes. So I thought, surely um, yeah. if you had a grenade, maybe I'm thinking far too much into this. You want it to be it's quiet, just warning. It's just warning. It's letting them know yeah. to run away. But in exactly the, in the end sequence. He's got 
I don't know, six of these things. And it's just him running around a mansion, jumping to the floor as they go off. I just, it's so yeah. funny though. I, I did enjoy yeah, it. It's the it's thing, funny. I keep, we're, it's one of those films where it's really hard because it sounds like we're slating it, but at the same time, we were. We te- are. No, I am. Oh, no. I am. Okay, but we were <laughs> WhatsApping afterwards and we couldn't stop talking about it. So it was Yeah, it's a weird <clears throat> film. Like the, sex, the sexualization of oh, women in the film a, is. It like, is atrocious. It, no, honestly, I think yeah. we, we've talked about how, again, I know Bond films in general aren't great for this. And even to this day, there's, there's issues with that. But I would this say. This is next level, though, isn't this it? This was another level. Literally, whenever he walks in a room, someone is throwing themselves at him there's no there's not even a question yeah. it's just and it's a pg it's a pg yeah. and they're dressed in like borderline is is really borderline yeah like it's, it's they they just they simply serve as a plot to look good um and so, so and actually i feel bad because we haven't really spoke about sharon tate much no let's this. let's she let's just quickly delve into that like she starts off as like uh, basically she's an, an annoyance to him she is dressed up in this um, she's like a hotel, uh, like hotel manager kind of girl thing. or something. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. And she's got glasses, hair tied up, r- really geeky. They make her look um, like it's a, an archetypal secretary of that era in films. You yeah, know, it's yeah, not yeah. like they make they try and make her look as unattractive as possible. So when actually like her and Dean Martin are like start to like get get to know each other, she next time you see her she's got hair down and, and she's absolutely gorgeous by the way like she she is she's stunning but we find out um, she's a spy so at, at the start we just think yeah. she's a completely useless person who keeps interrupting all his plans but we find out she's been sent to look after him and she actually saves his life on multiple occasions but it's the way she she portrays it as if she's not helping him but the film it's a double joke because the idea is all the times it looks like she's messing up she's actually saving his life a lot of the time so yeah, so to be honest, there's there's not much more to say on the Wrecking Crew. I would I would definitely tell people to watch it if if you're if you really want to have a look into what Tarantino was getting at, have a look at that. And do you know what? Go go and watch some uh, Sergio Corbucci, Corbucci films mm-hmm. from around that era because that is kind of what he was growing up on. So it's definitely yeah. worth watching that kind of thing. So we're gonna answer some listener questions. So um, I'm going to start off with the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that didn't organically come up. So, um, right, Johnny. So Ben writes in and says, what are your favourite movie scenes involving feet? <laughs> come on, Ben, you f- <laughs> dirty boy. Um, Johnny, uh, have you got, I've got one if you want me to go first. I've got a not favourite one, which is in Kill Bill. I hate the one where her toe's wiggling. Do you oh, know the bit I want about? Yes, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. god, it I, yeah. it gives me nightmares now. But right. um, and also, what's the? I tell you what, feet. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Ben. I I've got lots of fit, bits with feet I don't like, so I'm going to talk about those. The staircase in Home Alone when he puts his foot through the nail. To this yes, day, yes, I, I didn't think of that. Oh yes. my god! To this day, I I yeah. that for me is set up as if it's going to be in a horror film in terms of it's yeah. just grim. Definitely. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. You, you, you go. You go. I mean, I hate feet, so it's it's not really like I'm going to be honest. My favourite movie scene involving feet is uh, Have you seen Misery? Don't think so. Right. Doesn't oh God! It's an episode. It's going to be an episode. So um, Stephen King, Misery. Um, it's there's a scene when it's essentially like she cap she she traps a writer of a favourite book. 
So oh, she, I have seen it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what? Are you going to tell me it's rubbish? Don't you dare. No, 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 no. So anyway, right, there's a scene, uh, it's, it's called Hobbling, and basically there's she, she captures this writer and she I'll doesn't want him to leave, so she ties him up in bed and essentially smashes his ankles to yes. pieces oh, it's to make sure he cannot go anywhere and it's it is awesome as for the tarantino feet scenes it's just not my thing like I, the bit where uh pussycat or i think her name's pussycat i've said it a few times when she's got a feet on the window uh, it yeah. makes me feel a bit sick i'm gonna be honest it's just not <laughs> i don't like seeing the soles of people's feet sorry ben but keep your dirty questions to yourself um you've also got right. to think about stickers being on people's shoes haven't you underneath Oh yeah, well, that's for another day. That's <laughs> disgusting, disgusting. We're not going to talk about that. Come on, uh, we're not going to talk about my phobias, right? Um, right. So the next uh, question is, um, who is your favourite cameo from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, that is hard. Um, as in, when you say cameo, are we talking about the actors so, cameoing, or are we talking about the people? Because we didn't talk about Sharon Tate goes to the party, but there's all the people who appear. Nah, no, no, no. We're, okay. we're going to talk about like people like Kurt Russell, Bruce Dern, those types. So, who's your favourite um, cameo in in that? I again. Can we tell you mine? Yeah. So you go. my my favourite cameo um, by a country mile is I, I feel so bad for not knowing her name. It's the stunt woman uh, from Death Proof. She's just she's so good. Like, she's so funny. She's so furious about when the car gets smashed up. Yes. It's just so funny. Yeah. So she she's probably my favorite character uh, cameo. My, my second, my close second is Bruce Dern. Um, it lying in bed blind, very very funny. Because Brad Pitt says to him, "Is she the ginger one?" And he says, "How am I supposed to? I've just told you I'm blind." <laughs> it's just a great <laughs> he's, response. Yeah, he's, he's hilarious. Just, <laughs> he's um, hilarious. I was going to say for me, it's probably is Kurt Russell. I just love the fact that you know he yeah. gets his arm twisted into allowing him onto the set, and then it all just goes completely pear-shaped within like 10 minutes of him being around I just think it's brilliant love it do, do you know it's, it's crazy that Al Pacino can do a cameo and none of us have mentioned him but do you know what like I, I must say I'm gonna I'm sticking with who, who I've gone for I just want to so, say actually on that people talked about Al Pacino being in it actually being almost a bit distracting for a Tarantino film I don't know if you felt it was it wasn't for me but they made the point of you know because Leonardo DiCaprio is playing the washed out actor the film could have been even more effective if it did literally pick someone you know how meta do you go like who's actually yeah. on their way out and I thought it was an interesting read not something I thought but I just thought I'd mention it to you because no yeah. interesting no, I, I didn't like think at all I, I was just really happy to see Al Pacino I'm happy to see Al Pacino in anything to be honest <laughs> So seeing him pop up in that actually made me really happy. So um, we've we've got another question. We've got a question from Vicky, and it says, "If you could reimagine another true story, what would it be?" Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I haven't had much time to think about this one. Um, I think mo- almost anything, everything's been everything's been done at this point. Um, I'm trying to think of my favourite pieces of history. What can I say? Like, I wish um, that's a really hard one, but it's it almost becomes like making a what if film. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah, that's yeah, essentially yeah. what they are, aren't they? It's, uh, they are, it, yeah, yeah. So I guess I guess yeah, some some what if films. We might have to come. Do you know what we're gonna do? This is what we're gonna do, Johnny. We're gonna do some homework. We're gonna go away and we're gonna come back to this next week. Hundred um, percent. And we're gonna see. Yeah, if we could reimagine another true story, what would it be? We're gonna come back to it. Because it is a good question. It's a really good and one, but it's a really hard one. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be so there's going to be so many things out there. Um, what if, what if would it be uh, Stephen Gerrard slipping? 
I, I wish ju- he didn't slip. Do, do you know what? I have actually got one. I'm going to say it here and now. Go on, do it. What if they did the uh, Russians winning the space race? They landed on the moon first. I love those kind of films because I love. Apparently stuff. they did. Apparently they did. That, no, no. There's there's conspiracy theories out there to say that. Oh, oh okay. Well, yeah, yeah. There's conspiracy theories out there to say that they they actually did. Yeah. I'd like a film like that, or I similar to what Vicky's talking about here Phil, uh, TV shows such as Man in the High Castle does the idea yeah, of the oh God, Philip K. Dick yeah yeah, and again I, I love those kind of plots because it's just fascinating like, it's a weird macabre kind of I want to see what would have happened you know it's, it's yeah, yeah I like yeah, that no, no, I will think of more though I'm happy to think of more for the next time but that's my first shot do you know what we're gonna let's begin the next step we're gonna begin the next episode with with that question cool that's what we're gonna do um right so um we've got another question from stan for films our indonesian listener um i think nomadland is overrated and kind of boring what do you think listen stan i'm so sorry and johnny's also sorry nomadland i don't even think it's out in the uk yet so i haven't we haven't seen it and we will watch it i've heard it's Again, I've heard it's incredible, but like most things I hear that's incredible, it never lives up to expectations. So if it's one of those slow burns, then I'm probably going to think it's boring, so I'm probably going to agree with you. But anyway, we've got a, another question. We've got a question from Views by Quinn writes in, and he says, any movie franchises that actually get better oh. with each movie as opposed to worse? I honestly thought so long and hard about this, and I couldn't think of any apart from the only one where it upped is... There's right two part answer to this and this I know is cheating there's a lot of films where the second one the sequel has improved upon the first one I think Spider-Man yeah. 2 is a great sequel I Terminator do. Terminator 2 I think is a brilliant sequel I say Aliens to Alien again is a brilliant sequel I wouldn't but again that's you a hard one you would say better I would I, I wouldn't for me but you would I would yeah but I prefer it's, Aliens it's really hard and again, franchise yeah that's yeah, that's the so key thing franchise and I, I honestly to be honest to, okay, to I'm, gonna question, say, I'm gonna say no I don't I'm think gonna, there's okay a- I'm gonna tell you one and then you're gonna agree with me okay you ready Mission Impossible oh God. oh but he likes Mission Impossible too, doesn't he he loves John Woo uh, do you know what I heard that there's a three hour cut of that film somewhere and I still want to see it because yeah. apparently sorry let's get on to this Mission Impossible I completely agree but what I find really interesting is as those films went further on Tom Cruise got more and more creative control and apparently John Woo directed that film and then he got kicked out of the editing suite by Tom Cruise and if that is true <laughs> I think that's just so funny I don't know why I, I, mean, just, I just think that's brilliant I just think uh, what level of star power do you have to literally go John I'll, I'll take care of it off the edit don't worry about it um, I, yeah. yeah I mean we're talking about Tom Cruise I, I implore everyone to just google Tom Cruise middle tooth oh, don't. do that, do that oh. for me because his mouth doesn't sit quite down the centre of his face no. um, slightly off centre so he's got a middle tooth um, have a look at that ladies and gentlemen <laughs> but now you have said that about film series getting better that is 100% true because I loved Fall- is Fallout the most recent one I thought it's brilliant Fallout. so I've so that's the one I haven't oh, seen I've- Jamie you are going to absolutely love that film that yeah. film for me is basically set piece after set piece after set piece but it's like a roller coaster. it doesn't let up I don't know I, I really liked um I can't say that because you haven't seen the film yet. There's a lot to like in that film. That's all yeah, I say. It's, it's yeah. just it's they have got better. You are. Uh, do you know what? You've really gobsmacked me. I'm genuinely shocked because I thought well, there's I'm, no film series that has improved. There is none, and then you've said that, and it's yeah. I'm so happy that you did. I agree. Um, yeah. No. No. I knew. I knew you would as well because I knew. I knew that it might have. You've just obviously overlooked it, um, and so that's why I was excited to, when you didn't mention it. Yeah. I was worried that you were going to mention it because I didn't really have anything else really. 
I had thought of one the other day, but it, it, it slipped my mind at the moment. But Quinn actually also agreed with us um, that, yeah, Mission Impossible was the only one he could think of. Yeah. I, yeah, that's it really. It's 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 not. Franchises, most of the time, just leave it. You've, you've done good for the first one or two, just leave it. What I would say about Mission Impossible is, though, what I do find interesting about them, whether you like them or not, is each one is so its own thing, especially the first three are so different. So the first one's a real 60s, it's not spy caper, but it's more espionage. The second one was a 2000 action film, completely the opposite yeah. scale. And then the third one was J.J. Abraham's reboot, which I actually really enjoyed. I'm, I'm not knocking yeah. it. And then I know four, five, six, and are we on seven? I've I lost count, but they all kind of follow more so, like they seem more like sequels, don't they? I suppose yeah. from three onwards, but I just find it really interesting that every time they do them, they kind of treat them completely differently. I find uh, Christopher McQuarrie's a really interesting director of the most recent ones, and he talks about his process, and he writes the script around the locations rather than vice versa. They find these places, and I think that's a yeah. really different no, way of doing yeah, things. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's cool. You're right, and the the only other one that even remotely comes to mind is Harry Potter. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, I absolutely uh, hate the first two films. I, think I know you do. I know. So like yeah we'll do a Harry Potter episode one day uh, probably we'll have to do a ranking yeah. or something cool. oh oh, I'll rank the Harry Potter films because we know that it, it literally one and two are right at the bottom um, just terrible what is it we'll take the lot thanks absolutely awful get out of here right anyway um, so then the last question oh no no we've got two left so okay Film Forager writes in we've got um I, I think every teen was obsessed at one point with learning about their favourite serial killers. Who is your what was your who was your fave? Now I can tell I, know, I can tell you already without even asking Johnny that is not his thing. He, he is not going to be. He he was too busy looking for underground cuts of Star Wars and watching. Yeah, like he's he's just not into that. So Johnny, am I wrong? No, and I actually used to go on the fan movie edit website. Do you remember when that was a thing? No, it was. Um, it's like people who no. recut. The Phantom Menace and then Jar Jar was taken out of it and that kind of thing. Did okay, you, yeah. did you ever Fan- go on those? Fantasy edits, mate. No, no, no. no. <laughs> okay, so sorry. Yeah, in terms of my interest, no, it was not. Okay, not. so so Chandra, um, I'll, I'll answer your question. Um, when uh, I don't like glorifying serial killers whatsoever in any way, shape or form, I think it's a bit weird. Uh, but then I love gangster films, so who am I? I am... I'm here just contradicting myself, um, but I would say that I really, really was interested in Mark Chopper Reed when I was growing up, famously known as Chopper. He was an Australian uh, criminal who cut off his own ears in prison to essentially get out of get out of the prison cell he was in um, because he was, yeah, he was basically hit like putting hits out on drug dealers and stuff. So he, he was he didn't kill anyone, but he. He did sort of attack drug dealers and bad people. Um, mm. So yeah, Mark Chopper Reed. There is a film called Chopper, which is absolutely fantastic with Eric Banner. Um, ah, that's so it. Check that out. I was trying yeah, to work out if it was Eric Banner or I've forgotten the name. Um, the guy who's in Rampart. Oh yeah, yeah, Woody Harrelson. That's it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Um, so I, I love the fact that you said the guy who's in Rampart, which is Woody Harrelson's probably most, maybe his most indie film. Like, luckily, I knew what it was. <laughs> Um, went to see that at the Electro Cinema in Birmingham. So support your support your local cinemas. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I guess that was the only one. I was I, I used to be interested in Ted Bundy. 
Yeah, that's my favourite serial killer. Like, I don't have a favourite one, but I was interested in. Uh, tell us yours. Who's yours? We'll, we'll, there, we'll, I say we'll read them out on the next show. No, we won't because we don't we don't celebrate serial killers. Johnny, I was going to say, Film Forager also sent in a question last week, which we didn't talk about. Can we? So actually, Film Forager wrote in last week and, <laughs> and said, which was actually really funny, and I was I felt so bad for not reading that. Do you ever just wish you could have replaced Jen Grey in this film? with yourself the film she was talking about is Day of Dancing and the answer is yes yes of course I w- of course I would replace Jennifer Grey with myself because I want to be held in Patrick Swayze's arms because he's fantastic and he's beautiful and I love him um, and there's going to be a Roadhouse episode so is sit that- tight they're absolutely no one's going to stop me I'll do it on my own um, <laughs> that could be on the Patreon along with the Alien 3 special that no one cares about there you go right so we've got um, last two questions we've got uh, two questions so they're both from Pete so the first question is you spoke about exploitation cinema on episode two what what do you mean by exploitation cinema what what is exploitation cinema so i guess when i was speaking about exploitation cinema i, I believe so that became big in like the 70s when sort of no holds barred sort of everything started getting really dark really censorship awesome. changed didn't it right quite quickly absolutely yeah yeah of course it did yeah so exploitation films uh they were generally led by um a lot of it like italian cinema so you mm-hmm. would get like you kind of your giallo films and your lucio fulci films um and it was essentially like you would they they were sort of like the the premium kind of like italian films that you would associate with exploitation now what and and a film that maybe uh pete i'm not sure what how how versed you are in cinema an exploitation film that maybe i could relate to most people would be something like a clockwork orange yeah that that is probably the closest mainstream exploitation film i could think of um and what i mean by that is it's it's really dark um there's really brutal scenes over the top it's exploitative nowadays when, when we talk about exploitation films we talk about it's we're mostly associated with b-movies so it's b-movies mm. and you see like lots of stuff like rape um and you see like really over the top gore and violence and that's what we mean when, when we talk about exploitation films so i would i would say for you if you wanted to go and watch an exploitation film go and watch something like the new york ripper um, something like that and you would um, I would say Scum as, as we mentioned in the last episode that's that's kind of an exploitation film in a way because it's so brutal like we, we're talking mostly like horror films brutal like that kind of films um, sexual violence um, yeah so they, there you go that's that's your question so there we go so we've we've actually got another question from Peter so hi Johnny and Jamie he's wrote in to the email which is moviesinapodshow at gmail.com so you can write in as well so he says hi Johnny and Jamie huge fan here Tarantino has a number of pet actors he has used across multiple movies who would you each pick as the most consistent performer in his films Johnny that's a hard like? one I'll, I can give my answer if you'd like go for it the, I mean this one is it was, it was obviously difficult but I must be that really obvious generic person and go with Leonardo DiCaprio because when I think of his performance in Django and when I look at his performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I, I can't really sort of differ from that like mm. I, I think he's he's got so much range and stuff and they're two of his best performances ever 
so I'd have to go with that I'm s- yeah sorry for being boring no it's okay I thought mine was more boring so I was going to say Samuel L. Jackson solely because I love yeah. the character he plays in Django you know the yeah. old oh the, yeah. yeah oh yeah just, Oh, do you know what? And, and he's in. Oh. Was he in Hateful Eight? Hateful Eight, yeah, he is, Hateful yeah. Eight. yeah. And yeah. In, especially in Django is the one that stands out to me. But it was just so not what you expect of him, and I really enjoyed that performance. So, he's f- unbelievable yeah. in that, yeah. And so. obviously, Pulp Fiction is the one everyone he he's known for, I suppose. Yeah. Is the main. As he's in Jackie Brown one. as well. Yeah, he, he really is. Like, yeah, he's a he's a staple in uh, Tarantino films. So, yeah, um, and and guys, unfortunately that's the end of the show so this we, we always say oh we're running too long but guess what we're not we're not going to hit you with that anymore the podcast will go as long as it needs to go next episode we've got coming up is going to be a a like dreamy little valentine's episode where we're going to be talking about romeo and juliet and how exciting are we how excited are we about that I am and do you know what Baz Luhrmann films are really divisive but I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into talking about it because it's one interesting film let's put it that way Anyway, right, guys. So we're gonna we're gonna leave you. Please, guys, do not forget to rate us on iTunes. We only accept five star ratings, and because because it's true as well. Like you love us, right? So give us five stars. It really helps us. We we want to be at least in the top five hundred podcasts. So r- carry on rating us, and you never know. One day we'll get there. Remember, guys, we've got an email address now. You can write into the show at moviesinapodshell at gmail I've been Jamie from Movies in a Nutshell on Instagram. So come come and see me. Come and speak to me. And Johnny? At jcb.video. And that's it. On to our epic outro music. Did <laughs> it?